1 Samuel chapter 30, verses 1 through 10. Now it came to pass when David and his men returned to Ziklag on the third day that the Amalekites had made a raid on the Negev and on Ziklag and had attacked Ziklag and burned it with fire, taking the women in it captive, young and old, without keeping anyone, without killing anyone, but carried them off as they went their way. So when David and his men came to the town, behold, it was burned with fire, and their wives, their sons, and their daughters had been taken captives. Then David and the troops with him lifted up their voices and wept until there was no more strength in them to weep. Even David's two wives were taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel. Nabal's widow. So David was in a serious bind, for the troops were calling for his stoning. For all the troops were bitter of soul, every man for his sons and his daughters. But David strengthened himself in Adonai his God. Then David said to Absar, the Kohen, son of Amalek, uh, I'm sorry, yeah, Amalekite, Please bring me the ephod. So Abathar brought the ephod to David. David inquired of Adonai, saying, Shall I pursue after this raiding band? Shall I overtake them? He answered him, Pursue, for you will surely overtake, and you will surely rescue. So David went, he and his 600 men with him, and came to Wadi Bazor, where those left behind remained. For 200 men stayed behind because they were too exhausted to cross Wadi Bazor. Yet David pursued he and the other 400 men. Thanks, Morgan. Sorry about the uh, Ahimelech and Abiathar and all that stuff. So it can get pretty rough sometimes with all that. So anyways, all right, how are we doing out there? Shabbat Shalom. So if you've been with us for uh, the last several weeks or month, uh, month or so, I guess, we've been primarily speaking about David and Saul, things are going on in, in the book of Samuel. And uh, last week, uh, Rabbi Chaim looked at the uh, infamous David and Goliath story, and you think, oh, everyone knows about David and Goliath, right? Has anyone never not heard of David and Goliath? You know, I was in Italy one time, the only time I was there, like I'll say it like, oh, the time, one time I was in, the only time I was there, I went to see the statue of David. The, the person I was with had, ne- like, had no idea what that was about. Can you believe that? That was really odd. Like, didn't know, like, David, you know, David and Goliath, David in the Bible, nope. Can you imagine that? This is a U.S. citizen, believe it or not. So I thought that was pretty impressive, but anyways, just FYI, not everybody knows about David and Goliath, um, but Chaim spoke about that last night, um, and wrote me last week, and um, pointing out, just to kind of give you a little summary, if you remember, that really that story, you know, a lot of the press goes to the physical confrontation, the big Goliath and little David, and how amazing it was that he overcame, and he came that, but really it was a spiritual story, it really wasn't as much about the physical, and quite frankly, as Chaim mentioned last week, it really was... Uh, Less lo- it was lopsided, but not the way we typically think, because, you know, David basically brought a gun to a knife fight. 
uh, in the sense of what he had with the sling. So it's less about that. We don't want to focus as much on that as the fact that it was a spiritual battle. And 1 Samuel 17 even says that you know, it was the, the Lord that delivered David. Um, but, I mean, it was the gun, really, but it was uh, you know, the sling. But really, the Lord delivered David. And Chaim uh, looked at, at that whole picture there by, by just talking about sort of the role of the Lord in, in that situation. If you recall, he ended by reading uh, from Malachi uh, chapter 1, verse 11, which says, For from sunrise to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name with a pure grain offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says Adonai Tzavot. So the application there being is that God is not just our refuge and our, our, our fortress and our protection and our defense, um, but also our power for offensive attack. And that's what we saw in the, in the David and Goliath story, really. And when you're reading the book of Samuel, from, from shortly after that time, after, right after that David and Goliath uh, episode, through the end of 1 Samuel, the story really just documents the, the downward spiral of Saul and the, the, the fight that David had against Saul's attacks against him until such time as at the end of 1 Samuel, actually in this, this chapter, uh, right after this chapter, where, Sam, where, sorry, where, where Saul dies. That's really the rest of the, 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 the story goes uh, from, from David and Goliath on. There's a, there's a few interludes in there, and there's lots of things to preach on, but I'm kind of looking at this whole as a big unit, a big contextual unit of, uh, of what's, what goes on in that, in that time period. And for David's part, in that time period, despite some of his low points, which we'll, we'll look at or consider at least a couple today, um, regardless of that, David throughout that time was always loyal to Saul. And always persisted in the role that God had laid out for David. Um, he continued to play the harp for Saul day by day right after that, you read. And even though in two of those occasions Saul tried to pin him to the wall with a spear, David was still playing this. You know, imagine doing that twice. I mean, the first time, like, was it, you know, you'd think, you'd think you'd get the point. He did it again, right? Um, and he continued to do that. Um, he also remained loyal to the nation, he never, you know, you think about it, the, the leader was doing these things to him, and, but he remained loyal to, to, to the nation, regardless of his issues with the king. Uh, that's a lesson for us in itself sometimes, right? Uh, I, I won't even get into that one, but maybe you can piece that one together. But he also considered uh, Saul to be God's anointed leader through this whole thing, through all the attacks that Saul uh, gave on him multiple times. He, he didn't just say that, but he put it into action that he considered Saul to still be God's anointed, and he respected him as God's anointed, even after the death of Saul. You'll see that if you were to read on continual past where, where Saul dies and this guy comes and gives a story about, you know, this is what happened. And David still says, you know, who are you to raise your hand against God's anointed leader? Even though that story that person told him didn't happen. But still, David still respected him in that way. And that was David. But Saul, you know, despite being afforded that respect by David was just never really comfortable with himself. And it was primarily in light of how God was using David. You know, Saul tried every which way to get rid of David, right? You know, he sent him out to the front lines, made him go in and out from, from battle. Uh, that didn't work. And so he thought, well, I'll give him my daughter to marry. Maybe that'll throw him off uh, and mess him up some. And that didn't work. And then finally he just, he says, 
just gives the order, kill David. And then he just goes, you know, on a frontal assault, um, hunting him down, trying to kill him for this entire time. First um, Samuel 18, verse 12 says, Now Saul became afraid of David because Adonai was with him, but, Paul, but had departed from Saul. And a little further on, it says that when Saul saw and realized that Adonai was with David and that Michal, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul grew even more afraid of David. Then, uh, thus, Saul became David's enemy for all days. So again, Saul was afraid of David, not because David warranted the fear, warranted anything you know, like that, but because the Lord had departed from Saul. That's clearly what the text tells us. And it, it was clear to Saul that David was blessed, and Saul saw that, and the choice that Saul made was to become even more hardened uh, because of that. And those decisions, those decisions that Saul made in that respect were really ones that he had absolute control over, you know? David's success was not making Saul look bad, was it? But that's how Saul saw it. Um, Theodore Roosevelt, one of our presidents, is known for making a particular quote, um, and his quote was that, comparison is the thief of joy. Comparison is the thief of joy. And um, from the story of Saul, I think that, that, that really it goes beyond that, and that Comparison is not only the thief of joy, but comparison is the cause of death, <laughs> can be the cause of death, certainly spiritually and physically. I think you see both of those in this, in this situation with Saul, both spiritual and physical death based on comparison. And comparison and dissatisfaction led Saul to spiritual death and, again, ultimately physical death. And let's not think for a moment that any one of us in this room is immune to that kind of thinking that Saul, that Saul did, you know, being intimidated or over-concerned with what's going on in the lives of others. So avoid comparing yourself with others. Avoid being concerned about how they might be growing and how they might be prospering. That can only lead you away from your destiny, and it can only lead you away from what you're supposed to do, and it can also lead you possibly, hopefully not, to spiritual death, possibly physical death, you know? Now, what was read today was the story of David returning uh, to his wife and children in the town of Ziklag and finding it in complete ruins with his, uh, the, the, all of their wives and children and all their stuff uh, was gone. You know, they didn't come back to find everyone dead. They found that everything burned and the, the people and everything was gone, taken captive by the Amalekites. And the background to this story was that you know, David and his men had been continually fleeing from, from Saul and the attacks on him, uh, trying to seek, uh, seek some kind of just respite. And they made the crazy decision to, to, to find their respite in the land of, the, the, of Israel's enemies, the Philistines, to live among them. Uh, chapter 27, verse 1 says, that, uh, says, Then David said in his heart, One day I'll be swept away by the hand of Saul. There's nothing better for me than to escape immediately to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will give up searching for me in all the territories of Israel, so I'll escape from his hand. So we see there that David was basically facing reality. I mean, he knew he was right in the sense that he had done nothing to warrant the persecution of Saul. Um, he, he was rehearsed several times. He has said it. Jonathan, Saul's son, had said it. Um, he knew all that, but he also knew, you know what? Saul's just never going to change, right? 
And so he decided on this radical and crazy proposition to move in with the Philistines. Um, this kind of reminded me of like you're an Empire Strikes Back fan, kind of like Han Solo deciding to fly into the asteroid field, right? Uh, it's kind of crazy, but that's what he decided to do in order to evade his pursuers in that case. Kind of like what, what, what David decided to do here uh, with, uh, with moving in with the Philistines. And we see, we see that Saul definitely stopped pursuing David at that point, right? Um, and as common sense kind of as that seemed and as a brilliant of a plan uh, that we might think that is or that was, was it really? Was it really? I mean, the fact is, is that contrary to what was read today in chapter 30 and contrary to other times in David's life, um, on this occasion, he did not, at least we don't see where he consulted God on this move. Go back to 27 verse 1 again. Um, it says that David said in his heart. That's kind of what precipitated this decision. It literally says David said in his heart. He didn't ask God, and the text doesn't tell us that he prayed. Now, is this, is this why the bad thing happened to David and his family and all the people in Ziklag? Um, perhaps, perhaps. On the surface, again, it, it does seem like that David's move to be with the Philistines was a success. He was, he was safe from Saul. He was able to kind of come in and go out and raid on behalf of Israel, undetected and unknown, right? Um, it's a tough call because, again, on the one hand, by living among the Philistines, David did receive th that break, you know, from this, uh, the attacks he was getting. Um, but then on the other hand, it was temporary, right? I mean, it was only about 14 months and before it got pretty dicey again when we know that the situation being that now Philistines are going to go get out against Israel and David's expected to, you know, you guys are going to bring up the rear with us and, this, you know, all that stuff. So it was, it was only a short-lived lived period. And I think that this is one, one thing that we can learn from this is that really, um, you know, all of our, if you think about the good things in your life and the good plans or the successes and so forth, that's uh, great, but they're, they're, they're not necessarily God's best for you just because they're working out well, not necessarily. In fact, there's probably some things that, you know, you might have uh, that you've done so far that, that you might be better off without. I don't know. So again, was it God's best for David? We really don't know. But we do know that in order to do this, in order to have this plan succeed for him, that he went in and lived with the Philistines and so forth, um, he did have to stretch the truth quite a bit, right? That, that's another way of saying he lied, see? He had to do that. He also lived, I mean, he did live with some tension, right? Especially, again, at that point when he thought he would have to go out and fight against Israel uh, with the Philistines. And what we also know is that while chapter 7 might have no mention, a lot of people talk about chapter 27, doesn't, David doesn't talk about God, there's no mention of God in chapter 27. Um, while that is true, we do know that God did still protect David and their families. And God did convince I mean, he even convinced Achish, this is the guy that David went to initially to move in to the, to the, with the Philistines. He had that guy convinced. And as, and as staunchly as that guy was convinced, the other generals were convinced completely the opposite, that this guy is basically, the word uses Satan. He's somebody who's going to come in innocently, but at the moment of, of, of battle, he's going to flip on you. And so there's a lot of things going on there. So unwittingly, uh, regardless of whether 
this was God's best for David and so forth. Unwittingly, David was protected by God from, from battling with the Philistines against Israel. And also, the Philistines basically, not that David ever was trying to kill Saul, but they did dispatch of the Saul problem, in a sense, right? So, I say all that to say, you know, on, on the one hand, David may have exhibited a weakness in trust when it comes to his decision to live with the Philistines. In other words, he didn't really uh, seek out God and maybe didn't, didn't trust God in that area or may, you know, maybe even other areas of his life. But he did not exhibit any kind of you know, outright disobedience or unwillingness to trust God the way that we see in Saul. Because a lot of times people, when you read about Saul and so forth, they, we, they try to figure out what was it that... that that you know, Saul did so much worse than David. When you look at the situation, when you read about Bathsheba and his situation there, I mean, how much bad worse can it get? You know, so you got to look a little deeper beyond the actual things that are going on because you can't just compare stuff to stuff. Again, so David had had definitely had lapses in his in his trust and so forth, but not the outright um, disobedient type of stuff that Saul did. Saul chose to view an amazingly loyal servant and ally such as David was and considering him an enemy. That was one thing. When he, and he knew it was God's hand. Saul also, when you read a little, little earlier too, I mean, he, uh, as he was looking for David, he ended up killing a priest of the Lord outright, right? David went to see uh, Abiathar's father, Ahimelech, and Ahimelech didn't know anything was going on, and he gave David the sacred bread and so forth, and Saul found out about it later and just didn't want to listen to Ahimelech and just killed him and his whole family except for Abiathar, who, who got away and now was with David. So Saul, you know, this was all, again, born out of dissatisfaction, jealousy, and irrational thinking. And again, David didn't warrant any fear on Saul's part. It was that Adonai had departed from Saul. That's why he became afraid. So some of the details we're seeing here in, in these stories, you know, in David and Saul's story, does illustrate how God does take care of his own, even when they're under extreme stress and, and uh, not entirely obedient, let's say. It's clear that David, you know, was... Uh, was out of ideas after coming back to Ziklag, what, what, what Morgan read, and after seeing kind of this, this tragedy that had unfolded here, his family gone and his, his uh, own men wanting to kill him. And the grief and the hopelessness of that situation is evident in the text. If you look at verse 4, uh, it says, you know, they cried until they had no more strength to cry. It's literally what it says in the Hebrew, just basically, it wasn't in them the power to cry. Hebrew word for cry, just a little Hebrew lesson where uh, Joanna saw her. We think of mnemonics, right? Bacha, right? It's kind of a onomatopoeia, right? Bacha, bacha. There you go. So, anyways, there was not any strength within them to bacha. And what did David do this time then? After that, again, this this is a this is just a stressful situation, just as emotional of a situation as we've seen anywhere before for David. Here it's a little different. Verse eight it says, "This time David inquired of the Lord his God." Now, again, this is a good lesson for us because I think we tend to consult with God when we're unsure of what to do, right? Or when things seem out of our control. But that shouldn't be the pattern. And quite frankly, I don't know about you, but I think it's pretty obvious what David should have done, don't you think? Don't you think he knew? I mean, go get his family, right? I mean, what, 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 what do I have to think about? This is a no-brainer. Do I really have to stop and ask God about this one? But no, he did. And again, in this case, uh, like in chapter 27, he could have just said that. He could have just thought in his heart. According to my heart, I'm going to go get these guys, right? But unlike that, here he says, David inquired of the Lord. And this marks a significant realignment for David, 
with his returning to consulting with God, even when the answer seemed obvious. And now this section also uh, in 1 Samuel 30 seems to get a lot of press as well. You've probably heard this verse before, that you know, when David was in a bind and his troops wanted to kill him and they were going to stone him, it says that David um, strengthened himself in the Lord. You may have been familiar with this text before. And granted, this is a great verse. You know, many people take it as a model, and that's a good thing. You know, things are rough, there's pressure, circumstances are kind of out of control around you. Stop and strengthen yourself in the Lord, right? Agreed. A good plan, a great plan, but easier said than done, I think. The fact of the matter is that this action by David uh, is not, you know, an isolated moment in time. This didn't happen like in a vacuum, like it was a snap decision, and David all, I mean, think about it, they wanted to kill him, he was exhausted, he couldn't bacha anymore, and he just decides to stop and strengthen himself in the Lord. Now, it was something he had prepared for. Uh, I saw a movie recently, Jessica and I saw a movie uh, called Imagine, you haven't seen Imagine? Imagine is about the, uh, the, the, the best-selling Christian single of all time, that song called Imagine. If I can only imagine what the day will be like, that, that song, um, written by Mercy Me, so there's a, there's a, it's a great movie. Uh, it's writer Bart Millard um, of that group talks about in the movie, he's being interviewed, it's, it's a reenactment type of thing, but he said, yeah, you know that song, just, I wrote it, it was, the short, it was actually the last song on our album, we were trying to make 11, 11 cuts, and I just sort of threw it together. I mean, it came quick, really quick. Maybe 30 minutes, I wrote the lyrics. Another hour or so, I wrote the, the music. And, and the person interviewing him said, no, no, actually, that song took you a lifetime to write. It wasn't just a few minutes. If you watch the movie, you'll understand kind of what his life was about and how it was a lifetime's worth of work. And similarly, in David's life, this moment when David strengthened himself in the Lord was not a momentary snap decision. It was a culmination of a lifetime of practice. If you look back a little further, um, in chapter 23, Another situation where this is before David had moved in with the Philistines with his men, and they were being chased from pillar to post by Saul. They had just kind of been going around like a Bugs Bunny cartoon around a, you know, around a mountain with Saul's guys on one side and them, them on the other side, like chasing around a tree like in Bugs Bunny or something. And the text says that in chapter 23, verses 13 to 15, it says that after that episode, basically, they just said the men went wherever they could go. They scattered. And in the wake of that... If you look at chapter 23, verse 16, the text tells us that, that, that Saul's son Jonathan came to David. It says, Then Saul's son Jonathan arose and went to David at Choresh and strengthened him in God. In other words, and it's the same, same language we see here in chapter 30. In other words, David learned. David learned about being strengthened in the Lord. Jonathan strengthened David's hand in the Lord, is what it says there. David's power and his ability. <laughs> And beyond this occurrence, it's not like the one moment. I mean, this is, but this is another moment. Uh, all you got to do is read the Psalms to see that this was not new territory for David to strengthen himself in the Lord. And, you know, we uh, as people, we get um, in situations sometimes, we get injured, we go to the ER, right? I told you there was an illustration about the ER. We go to the ER from time to time, spiritually. Maybe we're helped and supported by others like, like David was with Jonathan here, and that's good. But are you glad to be here, John, by the way? Yeah, so the goal is not to stay in the ER, right? They sent you out with some instructions probably. Here's how to take care of yourself. Here's how to get better. Here's how we never see you here again, right? That kind of thing. I mean, that's, you don't want to stay in the hospital forever. You know, you, wanna, oh, you don't always want to be relying on others uh, as your path to your strength in the Lord. Again, we saw it 
we see it with Jonathan there, but later on we see David strengthen himself. And it's a process. Building, building up that strength is a <clears throat> becoming strong in the Lord is a process built over a lifetime. And there are times that we lean on others like David did in chapter 23. But ultimately it is you and the Lord. And you want to arrive where David did in Ziklag, being able to strengthen yourself in the Lord. And for David this was, this was crucial as he was just emotionally drained. And I, I, I'm guessing that really from the text there's no one there that was going to strengthen him in the Lord. In fact, they wanted to flatten him with stones at that moment. Um, so never mind that they'd been enjoying this autonomy they had in Ziklag for the last year, thanks to David. Never mind they got out of the sticky situation without having to attack their fellow Israelites, thanks to David. No, they wanted to take it out right there on David. And David could have backpedaled. He could have scrambled for answers. He could have defended himself. But he strengthened himself in, in the Lord his God. And again, there's a lot of backstory to that. And then he asked God about the real enemy, these, these folks that had run off with uh, the Amalekites. He didn't ask God about his own skin and what was getting ready to happen. He asked about the enemy. And with all of this as context, I think it's pretty extraordinary to, again, look at what Morgan read in chapter 7. It says, Then David said to Abiathar, the Kohen, son of Ahimelech, Please bring me the ephod. So he brought them the ephod, and David inquired of Adonai, saying, Should I pursue after this raiding band? Remember what's going on. I'm getting ready to flatten you with stones. Please bring me the ephod. Confirm, please is there. He says, please. Please bring me the ephod. Not, hurry up, quick! Bring it! No, they're trying to kill me. No, please bring me the ephod. And then David inquired. He asked a Sha'ala. He said, just that, he inquired. You know, he asked. The word for basic question. He didn't cry out. He didn't beg. He asked God a question. Then the story continues beyond what was read today. So I think those are kind of some amazing, uh, <laughs> amazing ways that David handled this that would be instructive for us. But let's lead a, read a little further after verse 10 where we left off earlier, where the 200 men stayed behind and then David continued on with the 400 men. Starting in verse 11, it says, Then they found an Egyptian in the open field and brought him to David. They gave him some bread to eat and water to drink. This is when they're in pursuit of the Amalekites. And they also gave him a piece of fig cake and two cakes of raisins. When he had eaten, his spirit came back to him, for he had eaten no bread and drunk no water for three days and three nights. Then David asked him, To whom do you belong? Where are you from? I'm a young Egyptian, the slave of an Amalekite, he said. My master abandoned me three days ago because I fell sick. We made a raid in the Negev of the Herathites uh, and on Judah and on the Negev of Kalev. Also, we burned Ziklag with fire. Hmm, isn't that convenient? And the story continues, and we see that this Egyptian then leads David down to the, to, uh, and all his men to the Amalekites and where they were, and David and his men begin to attack them. We don't know how many uh, Amalekites there were. We do know that uh, 400, of them, 400 of them got away, but even with the 400 that got away, they spent the entire day, from, from the, basically the dawn until evening, uh, attacking them. Uh, so I'm guessing they were pretty outnumbered, but with uh, the Lord's uh, hand with them, they were able to get back everything, and then some on top of that. And again, there's lots we can talk about in all these places, but a part of the story that really stands out to me is the treatment of the Egyptian slave by David and his men. And then the, the corresponding treatment of that slave by his master. I think this is instructive for us. You know, David and his men, they were, they were so hot and angry at this point, they could have just, I mean, they're marching by, they could have just not paid attention to that guy. They could have killed the guy. 
They could have thought, they could have thought he was part of it and, and killed him for that reason. They was just, or they could just done nothing because it would have slowed him down, right? There's lots of things they could have done because they needed to keep on moving and because they were quite beside themselves. But no, they considered this Egyptian. They took care of him. I think knowing nothing about who he was or his usefulness to them until after he was revived. Because it says, and then David asked him, who are you from? And we don't even know how long that took. There's no time clues necessarily in the text. Tell us that they waited uh, 24 minutes before he revived. They waited two days. They waited an hour. They waited a week. I don't know. We don't know how long. In contrast to this, uh, to how the Amalekite um, slave owner treated him. Guy got sick and he left him on the side of the road. Threw him away like a piece of trash, basically, right? Pretty rash decision. Um, Turned out to not be such a good idea, did it? And to me, in a, in a very real way, this harkens me to, uh, and bear with me, a little bit like Hebrews 13, uh, verse, verses 1 and 2, that says, Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. For in doing so, some may have entertained angels without knowing it. Now, I'm not suggesting that this Egyptian was an angel at all, but certainly was a stranger. And I think that's certainly a concept that we can glean from even the Hebrews passage. Um, we don't treat people well just because we think they might be an angel, you know. But the idea is to show hospitality. You may never know. This could be somebody, you know, something like this. And I see this as another lesson for us because the lesson is to, is to consider the little things that we do in life. Things that might seem to be an inconvenience, things that might seem to slow you down, seems that things that otherwise might look like they've got no value for you to invest your time or effort into, um, but they might actually turn out to be opportunities that could one day reap some, some big uh, dividends for you and others. But we don't do it for that reason, but we do know it, do it knowing that could be a reason, right? So, what big item applications can we glean from this entire narrative? And there are a lot, but I want to kind of focus on the, the few things that I, that I looked at today. Um, again, when you read, th- this is a, it's a fun reading. When you just pick up after David and Goliath and start reading, there's lots of stuff in there. But here's some things that I think we can glean from the narrative that encompasses what I entitled the, the message today, the end of Saul's life and the start of David's reign. So let's go over them again. So unlike Saul, who simply just couldn't stand to see David to succeed, right? Unlike that, we need to accept what God is doing in your life and in the lives of others. Be satisfied with that. Comparison is the thief of joy, and it can end up being the death of you, both spiritually and physically. So be satisfied. Not complacent. I'm not saying we'd be complacent, but satisfied that God has not forgotten you, that God has not marginalized you, and that there's room enough in his plan to, for you to succeed as well as others as well without being intimidated by that. Another point for us is to to develop your relationship and your interdependence on the Lord at all times, good and bad, even when the answers to your questions seem like an obvious no-brainer, like, yeah, go get them, go get your people back. No, we need to, to consider um, our, uh, what God might have to say about it. Chaim says that a lot, and it's good advice, you know. And again, this doesn't happen in a vacuum. It happens over time, and there are times when we're strengthened by others, and we, we're, we're strengthening the Lord by others, but we don't want to remain there forever. 
Realize also that you may experience some momentary lapses and weakness in trusting God, but that that does not equal outright disobedience. And momentary weaknesses are, are not equal to that, to that outright disobedience, and they are not a reason for self-condemnation or assumption that God has forgotten you. Because as with David, I think we're often uh, unwittingly protected by God's hand, even when we might not be acknowledging that or consulting with him. And again, that's during a momentary lapse of, of obedience, not necessarily, I mean, a momentary lapse of, of trust, perhaps, or weakness, but not a, a lifestyle of, I see what God's doing, I know him, and I'm saying no to that, like what Saul did. And lastly, consider that even the small, inconvenient, and seemingly unrewarding things that present themselves to you, that there are those things, but understanding that you don't, you just don't know the possibilities and the blessings that might be resident in them. So let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this historical record of Saul and David. We thank you for preserving it, Lord, with all the not-so-pretty details, even. Those, those, those not-so-wonderful uh, things that we, we, we see or preserve there that we can see and learn, still learn truths about you and we can glean instructions from you for living out our lives as your servants and as disciples of Yeshua. Truths from your word, Lord, that we're told in 2 Timothy 3.16 are useful to us for teaching, for reproof, for restoration, for training in righteousness, Lord, so that the person belonging to you may be capable and fully equipped for every good deed. May each of us here today, Lord, be inspired and taught by you through your Holy Spirit by way of our faith in Yeshua, the Messiah. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.